Welcome back, everyone. This is the Ace in the Wild podcast. My name is Desi. It's been about a month since my last upload, which was extremely fun. Thank you again, Diana, for coming on to my humble little podcast. And today I am switching gears back to historical figures and analyzing whether or not I believe they are Ace or not. The person I am analyzing today is somebody who I've done quite a bit of research on I've known about this person more or less for a couple of years now. My first experience with this person was, you know, back in high school, primary school, when I was doing preliminary research on the Napoleonic Wars. And as I came into my final ace form, I was looking for people in history who were ace. And as you might expect, and (laughs) as people who have listened, there just aren't a whole lot of them because there aren't a whole lot of aces. And a lot of the people that I have done research on, like Tesla, I really don't think were ace at all. And when you go back in history, especially to the Napoleonic and Victorian area, there is a lot of doubt and a lot of mystery shrouding the truth. So for this particular individual, I have relied on a couple of different sources, in fact about a half a dozen. This was a political figure, this was a prime minister in fact. This person lived during the time of the American Revolution, of Mad King George, and of course, the Napoleonic Wars. He is commonly regarded as one of, if not the best, Prime Minister Great Britain has ever had. And without further ado and delay, I would like to introduce the Man of the Hour, William Pitt, second of his name, Earl of Chatham, and Prime Minister of Great Britain and later the United Kingdom. This is not only an exceptionally interesting individual to have studied, this is also an exceptionally interesting time period in Great Britain's history to have researched. I know it's kind of a broken record with me in saying, oh, I've done the most research on this particular topic, and up until then, the demisexual episode is the one I did the most research on, but this by uh, Country Mile is by far the most researched individual that I've done, even more than Tesla and anything else I've done thus far. A big challenge, as I noted earlier, was finding reliable source material. There is a lot on the policies that William Pitt enacted. There is plenty of empirical evidence on what he did and what his policies were, but there isn't a whole lot, and there's conflicting sources on his personal life, which is what the latter part of this episode will focus on. Just some basics on William Pitt, also known as William Pitt the Younger, because his father was also a prime minister of the same name. He was by far the youngest prime minister at 24. It can safely be said that he will be the youngest prime minister Great Britain will have and will ever have. His father was a prime minister before him, William Pitt the Elder, His father was a popular and respected prime minister and was also very influential in grooming his son for leadership. William Pitt the Younger was commonly regarded as one of the best prime ministers in British history and also one of the longest serving, serving nearly 20 years. William Pitt the Younger more or less set the stage for the Second British Empire. The Second British Empire was the largest empire ever to exist, maybe outside of the Mongol Empire, and it was called the Sunset Empire because the sun never set. Whether you were in India, Australia, Africa, Falkland Islands, there was always a part of the British Empire that the sun was in the sky. Pitt is considered the founder of the modern Tory party, which is the Conservative Party of Britain. 
which is interesting because Pitt himself was not a conservative at all. He was actually quite liberal and progressive, which is strange. Despite how well-regarded he was and how he presided over such an unstable period and transformed the British Empire more or less into what it became at the height of its power, Pitt is not known like other prime ministers such as Churchill, Thatcher, and even his contemporary Lord North who presided over the American Revolution. The main reason why I decided to do this episode on William Pitt the Younger is that this man was almost certainly asexual and was described as such by his contemporaries and by his friends and even his foes. Now, to get into source material, the primary source that I used was William Haig. He did a speech at Cambridge, which was about an hour long. You can find it on YouTube. This individual wrote a whole book on William Pitt, which I did not read in its entirety, because the majority of the book focuses on his policies and his executive decisions, and there isn't a whole lot about his personal life. And it's also kind of slanted because William Haig is a Tory slash conservative and has a rather skewed view. Although I will give him props for being objective as he can, where he can. This was a very good speech that he did and it was very informative, so props to him. Another source is Britannica.com. There is a biography on William Pitt that actually has some more source material, which is fairly reliable. There was an article written by Marjorie Bloy at history.co.uk, which I used, which was very useful. Another website I used was historyofparliamentonline.org. This is very intense because of its focus on his policies and what he enacted. I sort of glossed over that and took out what I could that was useful. And last but not least, www.regencyhistory.net. They did a very good article on William Pitt. So I have a few. I wanted to make sure that I had a fair amount of sources because I needed to make sure I got a clear picture of him because there is a lot of conflicting information about his personal life. But with the sources that I've used, I believe that I have a clear picture of now than I did before and I can make an informed decision at the end whether I think he is asexual and what his personality was truly like based on the varying source material and its consistency. Now, before I get into the history of William Pitt and his tenure as Prime Minister, I do want to say that this is going to be a very history-heavy episode. So for those of you who want to sort of skip ahead into where I talk about whether he was an ace in his personality and such like that, feel free to skip to the end. But for those of you who are interested in his history and his leadership style and um, sort of a reflection on an underappreciated figure in history feel free to come along on this journey with me. William Pitt was born in 1759 in the county of Kent in southeastern Britain. His father was William Pitt I, first Earl of Chatham, later known as the Elder to distinguish himself from his son. The younger Pitt was born during the Seven Years' War, which was from 1756 to 1763. This was the first world war of sorts, because it had several proxy conflicts in India and America. By this time, Great Britain was a fledgling empire with holdings throughout the world, even though it was not nearly at its apex, which would happen in the 19th century. It was still a world power. This conflict was also known as the French and Indian War in the American Colonies. And his father, William Pitt the Elder, was the Prime Minister during this time. As a young child and boy, Pitt was fragile and sickly, and he had inherited gout. 
He was taught at home by Reverend Edward Wilson, who was a Cambridge graduate. Pitt would later on attend Cambridge rather than Oxford, since his father despised Oxford. Pitt was generally regarded as an exceptionally intelligent child, albeit bookish, aloof, and a bit cold. In 1773, at age 14, Pitt suffered an attack of gout and was prescribed a bottle of port, which is a type of sweet wine, fortified sweet wine, and he was prescribed a bottle a day as a cure. This is the beginning of Pitt's rather known alcoholism, and it was initially prescribed at a young age to treat a condition, and he would later on become a full-fledged alcoholic. Pitt later on attended Cambridge, which is a prominent school in Great Britain, and he graduated when he was 17 without having to take a final examination due to the fact that he was often sick. When Pitt was in school, even though he had a small social circle, he had close friends, and one of them was Lord Camden, and he had several other peers who would become important later on in his political career. While in university, Pitt was not considered particularly outgoing, but he was described as witty, playful, and charming with a gentle sense of humor, and he was very well liked by his friends. Pitt's father, the elder, passed away when Pitt was 19 and left him with a very small inheritance. It is unknown how Pitt's father's passing affected the young Pitt, but it can be assumed that it was devastating. The elder Pitt was regarded as an effective and efficient prime minister and very well regarded. Public ceremonies were held, which the younger Pitt was a part of. It should be noted that during Pitt's teenage years, the American Revolution was going on, and even in his younger years, Pitt was against the conflict. Pitt's political career began in 1781 when he was elected to Parliament at the age of 21 years old. In 1782, at the age of 22, he became Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is like the Chief Financial Minister. He would hold this office for nearly 20 years. In 1782, the Ministry of Lord North, who presided over the American Revolution, fell apart, primarily due to loss of prestige, loss of income, loss of manpower, and it was a disaster, and the monarch, King George III, was very disappointed and needed a replacement. And King George III, seeing the success of the up-and-coming younger Pitt, was very adamant about getting him in office, even though he was only 24 years of age at the time. Pitt was offered the position by King George III several times before he finally accepted, and at age 24, William Pitt the Younger became the youngest Prime Minister in Britain's history. Pitt's appointment, once again, was mainly because of George III. At this time, Britain was more or less a constitutional monarchy. The king wielded supreme monarchical power, and it was believed that William Pitt was more or less put in as a stopgap measure because the previous administration has failed and King George III was simply waiting for a better replacement. So Parliament, although begrudgingly, sort of went along with it. Pitt was seen as a puppet of King George III initially and he faced substantial opposition and was even faced with a vote of no confidence but refused to resign. However, as his administration went along, and primarily due to his oratory skills, Pitt was an excellent debater and statesman. He began to garner more support in Parliament and solidify his position. Pitt became known as a calm, composed individual. He was also incorruptible. He did not take bribes. 
and he became known as an Honest Billy, which is a great compliment at the time. He was still often criticized for his youth and inexperience, but these criticisms died away fairly quickly because even though he was young, he was definitely not inexperienced. He was very capable and very intelligent. Now, in this part of the episode, this is where I start to get a little bit arcane because I am talking directly about his policies. And the reason why I'm getting into this is I want to show his brilliance as a politician and as a leader, and also his understanding of financial matters and him getting Great Britain out of a very bad situation. When Pitt took the reins, Great Britain was £250 million in debt. The probability of bankruptcy was looming on the horizon. The loss of the American colonies had substantially reduced trade income, tariffs, and it also exhausted the manpower pool of Britain due to losses in war. The annual interest on government borrowing, which stood at about 8.3 million pounds, automatically produced a deficit which was funded further by borrowing, resulting in increased interest and an even greater deficit. This is where bankruptcy became an issue. Pitt had three possible ways of solving national debt. He could stimulate trade, increase taxation, and or cut government spending. Pitt chose to implement all three options as one policy. He needed to avoid involvement in any war since wars were the major cause of debt at the time. It has been speculated that Pitt was the most ingenious tax gatherer ever to rule over Britain. Again, amazing considering he was in his early to mid-20s at the time. One of his first acts was to reduce taxes on tea. Tea was a very hot commodity, giving the Qing dynasties control of the supply. The Qing dynasty was the dynasty that controlled China at the time and was widely considered the most powerful, wealthiest, and strongest empire. By cutting taxes, Pitt more or less killed the entire black market with one fell swoop. And by 1792, the government revenue had increased by £3 million as a result of legal increased consumption of tea. Now, an example of Pitt's progressive tax system was known as the window tax. And the windows tax was very interesting, and this is one of those rabbit holes I went down in my research. So, more or less, a home or an estate is charged if they have an excess, I think, of seven or eight windows. And the reasoning behind that is the more windows a house has, the larger it is, the more wealthy person lives there. So it is a progressive taxation system. And it's funny because if you go to certain areas of England and even France, you'll see these 17th, 18th, 19th century buildings that have boarded up windows. And that's one of the ways that people used to get around taxes back then is they would board up their windows or fill them in with concrete to avoid further taxation. Pitt levied more progressive taxes aimed at the affluent. They were levied on bricks and tiles, gold and silver, plate, men's hats, ladies' ribbons, perfumes, hair powder, etc., etc. Pitt also effectively reduced government spending by using trained and salaried professionals, not by amateurs rewarded by fees. Pitt also supported a proposal to establish a fast, efficient, and safe mail service because charges could be increased. And something that was more kind of out of his control was the return of American trade after the War of Independence, which helped the economic situation substantially. Pitt also made a sinking fund, which he would place money in, which would garner interest. 
And by 1792, roughly 10 years after he stepped in as prime minister, the debt had shrunken from 250 million to 170 million. Despite all the success that Pitt had on regaining financial stability, there was a new and powerful threat on the horizon, and that was the French Revolution. This revolution began in 1789, and it was seen as an existential threat to the monarchies of the time. Basically, the French revolutionaries had taken over control and executed their own monarch, and thus began the rule of several tyrannical leaders such as Robespierre, and this would in the end lead to the imperial leadership of Napoleon Bonaparte. In 1788 is sort of a response to what was going on in France, since France was England's longtime rival, Pitt brokered the Triple Alliance, which Holland and Prussia agreed to help restrict French influence along with Great Britain. And what's really interesting about this time period is the French Revolution was more or less seen as a leftist uprising where the people gained power, where the small became the mighty. This had sort of similar dynamics to many other revolutions, such as the 1848 revolution in France, and a couple hundred years later, I guess 150 years later, the Bolshevik-slash-Soviet revolution in Russia. And for those of you who studied history, what happened when the Bolsheviks and then Stalin took over in Russia, there was what was called a Red Scare in which the U.S. government and several other Western powers began to fear the rise of communism and began to try to stomp it out. And the U.S., this was known as McCarthyism. And if you were assumed to be a communist, I just watched the movie Oppenheimer, which was a really interesting example. You were persecuted, more or less, and were spied upon. This was what happened in Pitt's era. Pitt, who was known as a progressive became paranoid of what was going on in France, given that France was a long-time rival, and began cracking down on insubordination and repressing anything that was seen as revolutionary in nature. Pitt created a spy network and encouraged ordinary people to denounce any radicals. This has a very Orwellian feel to it. And this era was known as Pitt's Reign of Terror due to suppression of what was thought to be revolutionary attitudes and agendas. In 1791, Pitt saw what was going on in Haiti. Haiti was a former French colony that rebelled more or less at the same time that France was going through its own internal revolution. The Haitian Revolution was exceptionally bloody and violent, Haiti was the richest colony that France had and one of the richest in the world, primarily due to sugar plantations. These sugar plantations, unfortunately, were entirely dependent upon slave labor for their profitability. And these slaves, given the climate, were in horrible working conditions. They were mistreated, and there was a lot of them because they needed to be constantly replaced because of something called yellow fever. And around 1790... The slaves revolted, overthrew the provincial government, and essentially took control. Pitt saw this as a wonderful opportunity for Britain to further improve its financial situations by taking over this rich colony. However, yellow fever was the primary danger in Haiti, and this expedition failed spectacularly, primarily due to disease, desertion, 
and nearly 100,000 troops were lost, which was not only a huge hit to national prestige, but it prevented Great Britain from involving itself in French and European affairs. This was one of Pitt's biggest failures as a leader, but it can't solely be blamed on him. He simply saw an opportunity, he tried to take advantage, and he did not know that yellow fever would be the primary cause of death. Now, in tandem with the situation in France, the situation in Haiti, in 1788, Pitt also had to contend with his monarch, King George III, who, mind you, was very influential in getting him in power. King George III was having these mood swings and bouts of hallucinations. This is what later became known as the madness of King George. It got to the point where King George was shaking hands with trees. He thought he was deaded in the afterlife and talking to old relatives. And there was other things such as rambling on for hours at a time until his mouth would foam. It was a rough time for King George. Now, there was a Regency crisis because it was questioned whether King George III was capable of ruling given his declining mental state. If this Regency crisis would have happened and his son, the Prince of Wales, taken over, Pitt would have indubitably lost his position as Prime Minister, and the course of history would have been ever changed. And fortunately for Pitt and Europe as a whole, given the situation in France, King George III did recover with proper medical assistance. Just as an aside here, there is a 1994 film called The Madness of King George. I have watched it. It is very good. And it actually portrays Pitt rather well and King George III rather well and the dynamics of power at the time. So if you have time and you're interested, go watch it. It's worth it. In 1798, the Irish rebelled. This is something that had been brewing for a long time, given the Anglican Church, Catholic, Protestant conflict, and just general unrest, the British trying to wield power and subjugate a population who did not want to be subjugated. And this all came to a head in 1798. The French tried to invade, which would have been a huge disaster given the poor financial and manpower situation of Britain. But fortunately, there was a storm which thwarted it and averted disaster. The rebellion was eventually suppressed, but Pitt was worried about the religious conflict and that aspect of it, and he wanted to grant the Catholic Church and the Catholics in Ireland more clemency and leniency, but King George III, who had taken an oath to try to stamp out Catholicism, this all stemmed from hundreds of years earlier, did not see eye to eye with Pitt, and this led to Pitt's resignation. However, before that, the Acts of Union was passed, which turned Great Britain into the United Kingdom by uniting the throne of Ireland with the throne of Great Britain. At this time of turmoil and crisis in Britain, where Britain primarily did not get itself involved in European affairs, there was a young Corsican officer named Napoleon Bonaparte, he was making a name for himself. Through a string of victories, he eventually defeated the much larger Austrian army through a series of brilliant maneuvers and sieges. He won the war in Italy and more or less forced Austria to sign a peace treaty. France also held off the Prussian invasion. Mind you, Prussia was an ally of Britain. This was a way to try to stop the French. And the war basically in northern France ended in a stalemate. 
and the First Coalition War was stopped and a peace treaty was signed, although England and France still remained at war. In 1801, he transferred power to an associate of his and went into semi-retirement. He still remained active and involved. At this time in France, Napoleon Bonaparte was consolidating power. Britain and France were in a truce, but it would not last and everybody knew it. In 1803, war was renewed with France. This would become the War of the Third Coalition. Pitt at this time was quite unhealthy. He was drinking excessively and was experiencing complications. His first long term as prime minister had exhausted him. But as the most capable man at the time to take the role of prime minister, he stepped up. And unfortunately for him... Napoleon more or less wiped the floor with Great Britain's allies, winning a major victory at the Battle of Ulm, which he surrounded and forced a large Austrian army to surrender, one of Napoleon's greatest victories, and that was followed up by the Battle of Austerlitz, where Napoleon smashed a coalition of Austrian and Russian troops, completely decimating it, and it led to a peace treaty where Napoleon was more or less master of Europe because there was no one left to oppose him. The Battle of Austerlitz is perhaps what put Pitt over the edge in terms of his declining health. This was a devastating blow to him. He had worked so hard to try to keep France in check, and in two battles within a relatively short period of each other, Napoleon had completely smashed all opposition and taken control. The only bright spot was the massive naval victory at Trafalgar, which was near the end of 1805, October 1805 to be precise, which prevented a French invasion of France because the French Navy was more or less destroyed in this victory. However, by this time, given the stresses of leadership and an alcohol problem, possibly liver cirrhosis, gout, and other physical ailments, Pitt passed away in 1806 at the age of 46 years old. Pitt's last thoughts were on his country, and his last words were, Oh, how I leave my country, referring to the defeats inflicted by Napoleon on the mainland and the unenviable position Britain was in, facing Napoleon more or less by itself. In terms of character, William Pitt was very reserved and even considered shy. He was often called aloof and appeared rather icy, albeit he was very warm and funny and kind to his friends. This aloofness might have simply been a mask. William Pitt the Younger was an exceptionally brilliant debater. He was an amazing orator. He would get in front of the House of Commons, deliver these outstanding, memorable speeches, and then go home to basically be by himself, not talk to anybody. He was often considered cold and stiff, and like I said, reserved and shy, despite being a brilliant debater and orator. So a bit of irony that he was so comfortable being in front of people and delivering speeches, yet so awkward in one-on-one -on -one situations and with talking with people in a non-professional setting. Although, again, I want to point out that he was very warm, cordial, and even silly with his friends. One of William Pitt's greatest strengths was that he was overly optimistic, 
and ambitious, and this was also his greatest weakness, is that he always seemed to view the glass half full, but also be so overly optimistic that things would work out, especially with the war in France, that when the Battle of Ulm and Austerlitz came in the War of the Third Coalition, when that all fell apart, his optimism that things were going to be all right completely collapsed in front of him, and it took a huge toll on him psychologically. His personal growth was stunted as a result of his duties as a prime minister. At least that, was, that is what Haig says. This can be argued. He might have not been a social person to begin with, even when he was at university, when he was not confined or held back from living, quote-unquote, a normal life. He was still reserved and kept to himself. Pitt had no shortage of strange habits. He often would have letters that he would not open, and on his death he had letters from like 1780, which were over 20 years old, that he simply neglected. He was procrastinator in terms of this. And also his personal finances were abysmal. Despite his ability to fix the national debt and fix the solvency there, his own finances, he was in debt his entire life. He never got out of debt. He even was offered loans by his friends and even the king himself, but he never accepted these. And when he died, he was still in debt. But of course, the English nation forgave those debts since the great services he had provided. Despite being a master of global politics, Pitt only left Great Britain once to go to France. He rarely left his home rarely left his parliamentary duties. And this was really uh, an interesting thing to read, is that somebody who ruled more or less an empire that expanded from India and into Australia and Africa and the colonies, Canada, this man never left Britain except one time. So, interesting. He, of course, was completely disinterested in money, to his detriment, because he was in debt, he simply didn't seem to care. He wasn't a big spender. I would say his primary expense was his drinking habit, his consumption of alcohol. He drank heavily to deal with anxiety and pain from gout and illness. He would drink three bottles of port, which is fortified wine per day. It's actually the equivalent of two, because the way the port was packaged then, it was different. But it's still an excessive amount. It is very heavy drinking, which he would do every day. He was ridiculed for his drinking habits, although he was very, very rarely drunk in public. As a former alcoholic myself, I can guess how he drank. He would go home in the evenings after work. He would pop open a bottle and drink until he passed out, probably. He probably had terrible hangovers, I would imagine, which probably didn't help his health at all. In his second tenure as prime minister, he was very sick. You can actually see it in a portrait painted of him, how frail and pale he is. Also, it was believed that uh, William Pitt was celibate his entire life. He never married. He is rumored, and we'll get into this later in a moment, to be homosexual because he never really displayed any interest towards women, although he was friends with a couple of them, namely one he nearly married. Now, the pressing question that comes to mind, and the reason why I decided to study this individual, was William Pitt the Younger asexual? I just wanted to start with some quotes about him. 
One of Pitt's good friends once said the correctness of his private life added much to the dignity of his public character. Pitt really didn't have a lot of personal vices outside of his excessive drinking, which he drank more or less because it was prescribed to him at a young age, and that is one of the ways he dealt with anxiety and pain. I can't really fault Pitt for becoming an alcoholic when he was prescribed by a doctor when he was a teenager to drink a bottle of port. How was he to know that this would have deleterious effects later on in his life? This was simply a way of coping with pain and anxiety. Another quote which is satirical in nature says, "'Tis true, indeed, we oft abuse him because he bends to no man, but slander self-dares not accuse him of stiffness to a woman." And this obviously has a sexual innuendo with the stiffness part. It was believed that William Pitt was not attracted to women. If you look up pictures of William Pitt the Younger, he was portrayed on pen and paper many a times. He is not an unattractive man. Those who knew him found him endearing, very likable, and he was very polite despite being aloof and cold. He was not a mean person at all. One of the cases for him being homosexual, aside from the satire mentioned earlier of him not having a stiffness towards a woman, is that he said to prefer the company of young men, which further added to said rumors. And I've seen it said a lot, including some of the papers that I looked up, which I didn't use, obviously, that he was homosexual. There's absolutely no proof of this. And trust me, I looked for proof. The closest things to him being homosexual is that he was believed to be close to his secretary, Tom Steele, who was secretary of the treasury, and George Canning, a politician. And the closest thing to empirical evidence is they would often touch shoulders and be, like, physically intimate. It's believed that these men might have had infatuations with Pitt himself, but Pitt never reciprocated. There just isn't anything to say that he was homosexual. Pitt's good friend, William Wilberforce, who was another politician, said that Pitt was something between God and man because of his celibacy and his incorruptible nature, so to speak. And this might have been because Wilberforce was saying he is completely unswayed by the affectations of other people and lack of any romantic interest, which I guess is seen as a godlike trait back then. Who knows? Pitt was actually engaged and very close to being married to a woman he was close to, but it did not pan out, and Pitt broke off the engagement, which was a source of a bit of national embarrassment. This marriage also would have would have gotten him out of debt completely, because the person he was marrying had a substantial amount of money which he would have inherited. Pitt was mocked and satired for a lot of things, including his aloofness, his coldness, his drinking, but the rumors of his homosexuality were more tongue-in-cheek and were less pronounced. Now that we've analyzed all the source material and empirical evidence, I'll offer my conclusions on William Pitt. I will again say that asexuals represent a small, small contingent of the overall population. Thus, when I look up historical figures, I always have to be cognizant of the fact that, one, I'm biased because I want there to be more historical figures, so I might be more willing to forgive things that aren't 
asexual in nature. Nikola Tesla, for example, despite the fact that he was never really in a serious, committed relationship, it's very evident that he did have romantic interest in women. He simply had insecurities and tendencies, and he was also a workaholic, and these basically made him celibate that way, because he was committed to his work. With William Pitt the Younger, there is absolutely nothing, nothing that would indicate that he had any romantic interest in anybody. Granted, the source material for Pitt's personal life is limited. However, there is no shortage of satire, no shortage of comics, paintings, whatever, depicting Pitt in certain ways as sort of this whimsical character, but none of them depict homosexuality per se, there's tongue-in-cheek inclinations, but if Pitt had a homosexual relationship, it would have been everywhere. This is the age of dueling, tarring and feathering, and basically rampant satire in comics and everything else. A lot of these satires were absolutely brutal to Pitt. He would get hate mail from people. However, most of the hate mail was about his policies and personality, and most of the satire was about his lack of sexuality rather than his homosexuality. I will say again that he was engaged to a woman named Eleanor Eden, who was reportedly close to Pitt, and Pitt enjoyed her company, but it never was romantic, and Pitt would break off that relationship and that engagement before it became anything. It can be assumed that Pitt either was too busy to engage in his own affairs, or there just wasn't any romantic interest and he just saw this person as a friend. Thus, my conclusion, based on the evidence, and I could be wrong, but I'm really leaning towards this conclusion, is that Pitt was one of the few examples of a man in high power in the horse and musket slash Victorian era who was clearly an asexual, or if not clearly an asexual, on the asexual spectrum. There's just too much evidence for it and too little against it. And as a concluding thought, I want to compare Pitt to Frederick II of Prussia, who was kind of a contemporary. I think he passed away, you know, a couple decades before Pitt came into power. Frederick the Great of Prussia was openly gay, he was not explicitly gay. He didn't, you know, put it out in the open. He was from Prussia, which is modern-day Germany at the time, which was still not openly accepting of gay people, but was more progressive in that way to other nations. I initially thought that Frederick was asexual, but upon doing research, I found out that he was gay, and there's plenty of evidence to support that he was gay. The other individual of this time period, or actually about 50 years later, was the President James Buchanan, President Buchanan was the 15th president of the United States, and initially I thought he might have been asexual since he is the only president to not have a wife or a first lady. I did some research, and I found out that he had a close relationship and in fact lived with a man named Rufus King. Rufus King also was not married. And of course, there was rumor that he was gay, and it was often publicized. I think it could be said that James Buchanan was in fact gay, but this was the U.S. during the puritanical, strange pre-Civil War era. And also, there's even less about Buchanan's personal life since he burned a lot of his memorabilia and ordered it destroyed, probably because there was gay stuff in there. 
Rufus King also deleted his correspondences with Buchanan. I, and there actually was a note that was found that was subvertly gay that Buchanan wrote to Rufus King. So I do believe that the United States did have a gay president, the 15th president of the United States. But he's not well remembered and not well talked about because he was one of the worst presidents in the history of this country, if not the worst. But that is a topic for another day, perhaps. I'm not talking about James Buchanan, I'm talking about William Pitt. But anyways, so after a long and grueling search, I have finally found an asexual man who held high power during the Victorian slash horse and musket era. If further evidence came along that said that he was in fact gay and carried on homosexual relationships, I would not be surprised. But I will say that Pitt never went along to destroy his correspondences like Buchanan and Rufus King did. So I don't think he has a lot to hide there. But anyways, um, I'm glad to be back doing my regular format. I plan to do more of these. I'll have to think about what my next topic will be. I've been wanting to do this on William Pitt for a while. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week, rest of your day, whatever time it is, whatever part of the world you're in. I love you all. And I'll see you on the next one. Peace.